You can turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. And as uh, Pastor Steve mentioned, we're starting an Advent series that will run through Christmas. And we're going to do it in the beginning of John's Gospel. And as a reminder, Advent has been a part of the church's liturgical calendar for since about the 4th century B.C. And basically every year the church starts at the, usually the end of November or the beginning of December, four weeks leading up to Christmas, with a focus on anticipating the moment when Christ became flesh. But what's interesting is that the term Advent comes from the Latin term Adventus, which means coming, which is the translation of the Greek term parousia. And parousia is used most often in the New Testament to refer to Christ's second coming. So Advent then holds a dual focus for our hearts. It is thinking back on Christ's incarnation, and it's anticipating his return. This revolutionized the way that I approached the Christmas season because it instilled in my heart a desire to have the same anticipation for Christ's return that the Israelites had for the Messiah coming the first time. Timothy Jones, a professor at Southern Seminary, puts it this way. He says, In Advent, Christians embrace the groaning, recognizing it not as hopeless whimpering over the insufficiency of the present moment, but as expectant yearning for the divine banquet Jesus is preparing for us. In Advent, the church admits, as poet R.S. Thomas puts it, that the meaning is in the waiting. Just as the ancient Israelites awaited the coming of the Messiah in flesh, we await the coming of the Messiah in glory. Amen? The meaning of Advent is in remembering and waiting. And our remembrance of the awesomeness of Christ's incarnation should set inconceivable hope in our hearts as we anticipate Christ's return. And it should cause us to pursue knowing Christ now. And I believe that our passages in John that we'll cover over the next three weeks will help us tremendously with this. Today we're going to cover the first five verses of the gospel. Now the opening of John's gospel is different than that of Matthew or Luke because it doesn't focus on any of the events surrounding Jesus' birth, but rather on who the baby born in Bethlehem truly was, and the hope that his coming brought. So let's examine first what John tells us about this baby born in Bethlehem. John begins in verse 1 by showing us his eternal preexistence. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the word. John is beautifully purposeful in choosing these words for his readers. Because these words in the original Greek manuscript are identical to the first two words of Genesis 1.1 in the Greek Old Testament. Where it says, in the beginning, God created. So you see, John is intentionally drawing our attention to before the dawn of time. Before the heavens and the earth existed, the Word 
was in the beginning. But next, John reveals his fundamental identity. Look at verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now let's think on this phrase for a moment. The Word that was in the beginning was in the beginning with God. Now the preposition with that John chooses implies nearness or actually motion or direction towards something. So it means the Word was moving towards God or in communion with God. Again, it's no simple choice of words. John is saying that the Word was not a momentary manifestation of God on earth. The Word was eternally in communion with God. Now look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So you can see what he's saying. The Word was both in communion with God and was God. Now some have tried to say this should be translated, the Word was a God. But besides the fact that this phrase is missing any indicator of the article A, we can actually know that that's not what John means without even getting that technical. Look at what John says the word accomplished in verse 3 and think about it. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this is a pop quiz. What things were made through him? All things. What was made without him? Nothing. Nothing that was made was made without the Word. And since nothing was created without him, he cannot be created. That which made all things has to exist to create all things. So John is saying, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was both in communion with God, and the Word was God. This is a profound truth. And it's one of the most foundational truths about Christianity. It's what sets us apart from those who claim to be Christian but are not, like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. The Bible puts forward that God has eternally existed as one God in three persons. And this is one of the evidences of that. The Word was eternally in the beginning, both in communion with God and was God. And this is vitally important for us to really understand if we're going to see the magnitude of the hope that he brought. But before we look at that hope, any careful reader is going to ask two questions of this text. Okay, who is the Word? Because he's just saying the Word was God. Who was the Word? I've asserted that John is speaking about the baby born in Bethlehem over 2,000 years ago. But how can I be sure of that? How can you be sure of that? Well, let's look first. Turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John gives us the purpose of his writing. Listen to what he says. 
Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God. When John gives his purpose for writing, he says that it is so that we will believe something about Jesus. Namely, that he's the Christ, the Son of God. So we can see that John is writing about Jesus of Nazareth. But that's not our only clue. Turn back to chapter 1. Notice the flow of thought in this first chapter. In verse 1, the apostle writes about the eternally preexistent word. Then in verse 14, he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now next, notice verse 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This, this word, is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And then move down to verses 29 through 30 and compare it with those. The next day, he saw Jesus coming towards him. This is John. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now catch this. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. You see what he's showing us in these verses. The Word is the one who John the Baptist said ranked before him. Jesus is the one that John the Baptist said ranked before him. So Jesus is the eternally preexistent word mentioned in verse 1. That's how we can be sure that Jesus has always been with God and was God. John wants to make it absolutely clear to his readers who the baby born in Bethlehem was. He is not a temporary manifestation of God. He was in the beginning, in communion, in God. And he was God. This moves us to our next question that I think the text demands. Why does, Jesus, why does John call Jesus the Word? Why does he call him the Word? Have you ever stopped and thought about that? I think it's because throughout the Bible, the Word of God is seen as the powerful, perfect truth of God revealed to man. Genesis 1 continually repeats, God said, let there be, and whatever he named was created. We have this wonderful children's book called the Big Picture Story Bible, if you've ever heard of it. And from it, our kids have learned to answer the question of, how did God create the world? By saying, with big words. I love the simple, beautiful way that that has taught them to learn the power of the word of God. God created everything with his powerful spoken word. Let there be light. Light. 
let there be the heavens. Heavens. Let there be animals. Animals. Everything with a spoken word. Then, as we study the Bible and we move throughout the Bible, we see that the patriarchs and the prophets continually reveal the nature of God and the will of God to his people through the declared word of the Lord. Listen to how Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 describes the powerful word of God. I love this verse. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, the word of God is the powerful, perfect truth of God created everything, sustains everything, goes out and comes back, accomplishing what it meant to accomplish. And I believe that John proclaimed Jesus as the Word because he had come to see the person and the words of Jesus as the powerful, perfect truth and final revelation of God to man. If you read throughout the Gospel of John, he's going to go on to use this same Greek word over 35 times in his Gospel, most of which referred to the words spoken by Jesus. You see, he saw the words that Jesus spoke as the very words of God. And he saw Jesus as the Son of God, revealing the unseen God to the world. Notice what he writes in verse 18 of chapter 1. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So let this truth sink into your heart for a moment this morning. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's astonishing. God incarnate. There's not even words that can come up how amazing that is. The baby born over 2,000 years ago, the one who laid his head in a manger, the child who had to grow up, the man who taught, who suffered, who died on the cross and who rose again, was the eternally pre-existing word, God in the flesh. Church, are you amazed by that? This then moves us to think about the hope that this baby's birth brought. This is where it gets good. Look at verses 4 through 5. In him, that is the word, was life. And life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The hope that this baby's birth brought to the world over 2,000 years ago is victorious light. Light that shines in the darkness. Light that the darkness has not overcome. Now, in order to fully comprehend this, we must first see that light in verse 5 is personified. Pastor Steve is going to examine these verses more closely next week, but notice what is said in verses 6 through 10. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light was coming into the world. He was in the world, yet the world did not know him. So we see in verse 5 that the apostle is talking about a person when he says, light shines in darkness. Because in verse 8, he says that the man named John was not the light. And in verse 10, he says the light was in the world, but the world did not know him. The light that shines in the darkness was a person. Now just to be clear, who is this person? Look at the middle of verse 10. And the world was made through him. Sounds a little familiar. Compare it with verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the word. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. See what he's saying. The light is the word. The word is the light. The word is Jesus. Therefore, the light is Jesus. Next, we need to see that the light is stronger than the darkness. Darkness symbolizes the world filled with evil and sin and sorrow and corruption. And in the end of verse 5, he says, the darkness has not overcome it. Now, you may have a translation before you that reads, the darkness did not comprehend it. While that's possible in the Greek, I think overcome is the right translation. And the reason is because when it's used again in John 12, 35, there Jesus says, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Overtake is the same word back in John 1. So in John 12, 35, we see the concepts of light and darkness together again. And we see it used in conjunction with this word. But it would not make sense to, to translate John 12.35, lest the darkness comprehend you. So John means that light is stronger than the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Oh, but there's more. We see here that light shines in the darkness. Look at the beginning of verse 5 again. The light shines in the darkness. I can think of very few words that are more beautiful than that. 
light shines in the darkness. Maybe you've felt that in life. Maybe you've been in moments of darkness. And you've felt the truth that the light shines in darkness. Now what's fascinating here is that the word for shines indicates that the object presents itself with no necessary assumption of any beholder. This means that the light objectively shines, inherently shines. It doesn't matter if we see it or not, the light shines in the darkness. Do you see the hope yet that this baby's birth brought? Light shining victoriously over the darkness. But how can John be so sure of that? After all, darkness often appears to be winning. And if you think about the original recipients of this letter, Jesus has died. And darkness seems to have won. How can John be so sure? Notice how the previous verses connect to this. Because light, the light, is the eternally pre-existing God of the universe. Therefore, darkness has not overcome him. You see how that bolsters the truth. The light was in the beginning with God. The light that was God. The light that created everything. The light that nothing that was made was made without him. That light is greater than the darkness because that light is God. Jesus Christ is the radiant light for the world to see shining in the darkness and overcoming it. But it gets better. Bet you thought it couldn't. Finally, in verse 4, we see that Jesus is life-giving light. Look at what verse 4 says. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is a magnificent truth. You see, the light that shines in the darkness is not a static lamppost for us to only see, but it's life-giving light for us to have, to experience, to enjoy. This is why Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Or again in John 12, 36, Jesus said, While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And again in John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is life giving light. He gives the light that shines in the darkness. He gives the light that the darkness has not overcome. He is victorious light, which begets victorious light. That's the hope 
that this baby's birth brought victorious light for you and me. So I see four things that this thing, this means for us. One, believe in Jesus Christ to have the victorious light of life. Look back at John's purpose statement in John 20, 31. He said that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These five verses, they're written for you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. True life. Life with the light of men. John wrote, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. If you want victorious light, if you want true life, if you want true joy, you must believe in the light. You must believe that the eternally preexistent word became flesh and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And you must believe that darkness has not overcome him, but he has risen and he lives shining in the darkness. Oh, believe. Believe in the light of life. Second, believing in Jesus Christ gives us inconceivable hope. I hope you've seen the hope of this text. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If the darkness has not overcome it, the darkness will not overcome it. And darkness will be overcome by it. You see, our hope rests firm in the victorious light of Jesus Christ. He has overcome And we will overcome. And then we'll experience the marvelous words of Revelation 21, 9 through 11. If I can encourage anything during this season, it's read Revelation 20 and 21. Set your hope on that. Listen to the words of verses 9 through 11 and 23 through 25, where the angel says to John, Come, come, and I will show you the bride. That's the church, the wife of the Lamb of God. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. You see, all of history 
is moving towards a culmination. It's moving towards a day when Jesus Christ will return and those who are in him will have everlasting joy and those who are not, everlasting punishment. If you believe in Jesus, you have hope that when that city comes down, when Jesus comes, you will see that light forever. What hope we hold in this season. But its hope is not just for eternal glory. If you believe in Jesus now, if you are in him now, you have the light of life which the darkness will not overcome. Are you in a moment of darkness? Have you ever been? When you just feel like the world is winning, when you just feel like Satan's winning, can I encourage you, run to the word and look at the light. And remind yourself that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Pursue the light. Soak yourself in his word. Pray for him to show you his light until you feel it. Hunger and thirst for him. Look for Jesus. Come on Friday mornings and ask God to reveal himself to you. Because the light shines in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Believe in Jesus. And as you do, you find that you have inconceivable hope that will never be shaken. The third thing this text teaches us is that the world needs exposure to the light of life. John wrote these things so that people may see him believe. And he wrote these things so that the world may be exposed to the light that it missed when it walked among it. This Advent season is an opportunity for us to shine the light of Christ in the world around us. When people ask if you have a tree up, why do you have a tree? When people ask if you go out to the desert on the 21st, why are you going out to the desert to sing songs? You have an opportunity to shine the light of Christ. When people ask, why do you celebrate Christmas? You have an opportunity to show them the hope that you have. I memorized Romans 10, 14 through 15 years ago, and I say it to myself often to remind it, my heart of its truth. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear of him unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? How beautiful. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, let me encourage you. Have beautiful feet this December. Shine the light in the darkness. 
And the angels exposed the world to the light when it proclaimed of his glory to the shepherds. God the Father exposed the world to the light when he rose Jesus from the dead. John exposed the world to the light when he wrote these words. And Jesus says to his disciples in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. The world, they need Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the fourth observation. And it's that walking in the light shines in the darkness and will not be overcome by it. The apostle who wrote the Gospel of John writes a letter to the church. And in 1 John 1, 5-7, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. The Apostle Paul puts it in this way in Ephesians 5, 8 through 9. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. We are called to walk in the light. We're called to shine into the darkness. We're called to proclaim to the world that the darkness has not overcome. Let me ask you, in your workplace, do you shine in the darkness? Maybe you have a difficult boss or manager. Maybe you have long hours. Do you shine in the darkness? Maybe your work is easy and comfortable. Do you shine in the darkness? You see, in comfort or in struggle, we're called to walk in light. Parents, is your light shining in the darkness at home? Do your kids see the fruit of light? The way that you're patient with one another and love one another. The way you're kind or gentle. The way you give of your time or sacrifice or serve one another. Do they see it in your pursuit of the light? I read um, a blog maybe years ago and someone just talked about how they grew up and their, their father always spent their time in an office reading the Bible. And they assumed he was reading the Bible because they knew he was a godly man. But they said that their mother spent time with the Bible opened on the kitchen table. So whenever they'd walk out, they would see her pursuing the light. Now I'm not saying do something just out of a normal, uh, abnormal practice or anything. But what that story reminds me of is that our children need to see us pursuing the light. How will they pursue the light if they don't know that mom and dad pursue the light? They need to see us praying. They need to see us worshiping. They need to see us studying. Does your light shine in the darkness at home? 
Maybe this Advent season you need to rearrange your schedule. Have some readings at night of some scriptures with the family. Something to shine the light. For those who are single, or maybe their families are far away right now, are you living in a way that the light shines in the darkness through you? Are your priorities wrapped up in work or obtaining material things? Are they wrapped up in living to expose the world to the light of Christ? Maybe you can give more time serving the church or other families or evangelizing. Maybe you could connect with the nomads ministry this Advent season to give of your time to shine as light. If you believe in Jesus Christ, walk in the light as he is in the light. Let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify God. Show the world the hope that lies within you. And if you're here this morning and you don't believe in this life-giving light, you don't believe in the name of Jesus, if you don't believe that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for sin and that he rose victoriously, see him shining in the darkness. Ask for God to open your eyes. Believe this morning that his death showed victory over the darkness. And walk in the light for the first time. Because by believing, you will have life in his name. Please join me in standing as I pray this over us. Father in heaven, it is an amazing truth that God took on flesh. It's difficult to understand, but it's true. And we praise you for it. Because we were hopeless on our own. But when Christ took on flesh, and dwelt among us and died for us. He gave life. He made a way to be reconciled to you. We praise you for that. And God, I ask that in this season, in this time when we remember the moment he took on flesh, when we remember his birth, that you would instill in our hearts awe over that, that you would help us to be overwhelmed by the magnitude of that truth, that you would cause us to worship. God, I pray for those who don't know you that may be in this room, that you would open their eyes right now, that you would remove the veil and you would shine the light of the glory of Jesus Christ into their hearts, and that through your spirit you would beckon them to turn 
and to trust in you. Give us grace to believe in this season that you are better than anything this world has to offer. That your coming is better than anything else. Give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen.